So we continue making our way through Exodus, coming to the 35th chapter, reading the entirety of that chapter. Exodus 35, God's holy and inspired word, give your attention to the reading of it, Exodus 35, God's word. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars and its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of presence. The lampstand for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen of the door and the screen of the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. Finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart stirred him and every one whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for its all, all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all were with all were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and sore all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns of fine linen of goat's hair or tanned rams, skin or goat skins, brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they brought all that they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece and and spices and oil for light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work 
uh, that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he inspired him to teach, both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled him with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless. So window shopping is an interesting activity. Some enjoy it and some do not. It isn't very great for your desires, as it can put your coveting on steroids, and yet it can be good for your stewardship since you look and do not buy. Window shopping can put you in the heart of the world's consumerism and materialism, and yet it can also expose you to some of the best craftsmanship and finest products on earth. Nevertheless, in the right season, amid the right shops, window shopping can be a time of wonder and delight. It's Christmas Eve and you are on Oxford Street in London, or it's a warm summer night in Venice, or the autumn leaves are falling in Boston Common. The gold sparkles, the fine leather allures you with their caramel colors, and the air smells of delicacy. Fancy window shopping is like visiting a world-renowned museum you cannot touch but you're amazed by the beautiful artifacts that humanity can produce. And believe it or not, this is basically what Exodus 35 is. It is a tour of the best and fanciest. And so let us take a stroll to see what the Lord is up to. So as you know, there's been a great tragedy of sin, a deep breach of relationship that seems incurable. Israel committed adultery with idols. The wedding reception of Sinai was still going on, and Israel got promiscuous with a strange God. How do you recover from this? This blows a hole so big, no restoration can bridge it. And the Lord almost ended it. He nearly pushed Moses aside and torched every last Hebrew into ash. Yet Moses stepped in the gap. The Lord revoked the total annihilation order. But he was not going to go with Israel, and the building of the tabernacle was canceled. And so Moses labored some more, and the Lord mercifully agreed to take his people back fully. The tablets that were shadowed have been remained. The covenant has been reconstituted, and peace and unity healed hostility, and separation. And this radical restoration is felt in the very first line of our chapter. Moses gathered the whole congregation of Israel. The last time Israel was gathered was when they assembled in hostility towards Aaron 
to make them an idol. The idolatrous mob has been transformed after the covenant renewal into the formal assembly of God's covenant people. The forgiving and transformative grace of God is remarkable. And in this formal setting, Moses delivers more of God's word. Particularly, he repeats the Sabbath command. Work six days and cease all work on day seven. And all who work on the Sabbath shall be executed. Now, if you recall, the blueprint for the tabernacle given in Exodus chapter 25 through 30 was capped off with the Sabbath. But here, as we come to the construction of the tabernacle, the Sabbath is first out of the gate. Thus, this work primarily in view here is the labor on the tabernacle. The gluing and sewing together of the tabernacle may be holy work, but not even it can happen on God's holy time. For remember that the Sabbath and the tabernacle are analogous. The tabernacle is to space what the Sabbath is to time. Both are God's sacred possession. Nevertheless, while the tabernacle is being put together, the Sabbath takes precedence. Yet the Lord adds an additional prohibition to the Sabbath here. You shall make no fire in your settlements on the Sabbath. Now, he already outlawed food prep on day seven, and now God even excludes having a fire. Why is this? Well, with the Sabbath, there's always the smell of creation. Also, fire for the Israelites was not just about warmth or cooking, but about light. The only source of light they had came from fire, candles, and wick lamps. Yet the creation of light in Genesis 1 was the beginning of time, just as the sun measured time in days. To cancel fire or light, then, is to stop time. The stopping of all work was a pause of the common curse, as the curse was poignantly felt by scratching out a living by the toil the sweat of your brow. As no work gave respite from the curse, so to turn off all lights paused earthly time. Without a candle, time stopped on the Sabbath to share in God's heavenly time. To kill the clock made the Sabbath a taste of eternity. To flip off their clocks of light reminded the people that set before them was an eternal Sabbath, a heavenly rest beyond earthly time. Without fire on day seven, Israel spent the day doing nothing but living by the timelessness of God's eternity. But there's more. The residential prohibition on fire contrasts with worship in the tabernacle once it is completed. When the tabernacle is up and running, worship in it centers on making and keeping fire burning. The essence of worship was to burn in order to produce a sweet-smelling smoke for God. The menorah lamp burned all night. Incense was flamed on the inside in the holy place. And especially, double lambs were offered on the bronze fire 
to bronze altar to keep its fire burning. In fact, the fire on the bronze altar could never go out. It was called an eternal flame. And so on the Sabbath, all fire and time is stopped except for the holy fire in the holy place during holy time. This single sacred flame was an experience of the heavenly realm that is timeless. The burning clock of worship enabled the people to enjoy the blessed rest and inactivity of God with the Lord as the only source of light, warmth, and worship. By giving priority to the Sabbath, the Lord is locating the building of the tabernacle within the context of his eternal plan. He's teaching Israel here how to be heavenly-minded. Nevertheless, with their clock set, it's time to get to work. Moses next issues the order to take up the offering. This is the contribution from the people dedicated to the Lord for the specific purpose of tabernacle construction. Yet the essential ingredient in this offering is the motive. It's repeated about a half a dozen times or so in our chapter. And this is expressed as a generous heart, verse 5. The word, though, for generous has a meaning like a seven-layer dip. It is complex like a cut gem. First, the generous heart is fueled by freedom and being voluntary. This heart is not propelled by compulsion, guilt, or by extraction. In one sense, the offering is an order from God, but the active agent is in giving is free will. You give whatever you want to, more or less, it is up to you. And such a voluntary heart harmonizes with sincerity. With wholeheartedness, the person gives freely what they desire. Second, this generous heart is characterized by generosity, by liberality, extravagance, and bounty. Such open-handedness disregards stewardship, saving, and bottom lines. Rather, it gives and gives with a burning love, a burning of love and joy. Finally, this generous heart has the sense of nobility. In fact, a noble heart is a better rendering for this. But what is nobility? Well, the noble is goodness wrapped in beauty with a bow of the exceptional. Noble is not average or mediocre. Noble is not C equals degree. Instead, noble performs the highest quality for the very sake of it. It does its best not to beat others, not to exalt itself, but because exceeding excellence is beautiful. The noble is inspired by the magnificent just for the sake of the magnificent. Therefore, this noble heart that propels the people is a gorgeous, free, loving, and high-grade generosity because, because it matches Yahweh himself. And this nobility of heart is evident in everything the people do here. For now, 
we come to the list, we stub our toe on the tedium of what we've already heard several times before. There's the list of all the materials to bring, gold, purple, leather, oil, and spices. But this is the same stuff in the same order that we've heard before. Repetitive. Then there are the pieces of the tabernacle that are to be made. The ark, the menorah, the bronze altar, the laver, and so on. We have had chapters on this stuff. But not only did we get an extensive course on these things back in chapters 25 through 30, but all these things are repeated three or four times in this one chapter. So why so much tedious repetition? Well, if you, if you love something, do you tire of it? We have no problem eating bacon over and over again. The gorgeous engagement ring is admired ten times a day. You cannot wait to get back into your new car every day again. The kisses of a lover are not worn out by repetition. The beautiful, desirable, and delicious are appreciated by repetition. Thus, the materials given here are the most costly and wonderful things of the day. The blue and purple fabrics strut down the catwalks of Egypt. The oils and fragrances are the stuff of five-star spas. The leather and lumber are priced for the millionaires and billionaires. To hear of these luxuries is like window shopping in Dubai. They are rare treasures applauded in a museum. And then there's the pieces of the holy furniture, the cherubim veil, the altar of incense, the table of face bread. These are the physical items of God's presence and communion with his people. The sacred vestments of Aaron are the fine threads of mediation, forgiveness, and blessing. The pieces of the tabernacle are the sacraments of their life with God. Besides, most of these items the people never got to see. Once they were locked away in the tabernacle, the holy beauties were not experienced. The only way the people could access them was by the word over and over again. To critique this as repetitive is like chiding a wife for rereading the love letters of her husband deployed in war. It's offensive. Additionally, besides window gazing these at these sacred fancies, It is also a joy to hear the people in action. For Moses now opens the door to bring the offering, and the people flock to the door with everything and more. Their noble hearts empty every jewelry box, safes, and safety deposit boxes. Women give of their nose rings, their earrings, and their brooches. Wherever it is found, they bring the blues and purples of kings and queens. Rare spices, premium oils, perfect acacia wood, and flawless leather. It's like the crown jewels of British royalty are being emptied. Despite being slaves not too long ago, these Hebrews plundered the Egyptians, and with their noble hearts they lavish it all upon the house of God. Yet, 
It is fascinating, yet it is fascinating as the gates of generosity are flung open that the gifts are not merely things. You can also contribute your skills and efforts. All those wise of heart donate their time and experience. The best stuff is given and the best talents are employed nobly. And the text gives us a particularly distinct section just on the ladies. Verse 25 and following. These are the women, wise of heart, masters of their craft. The building of the tabernacle is not just man's work, but the women are indispensable. In their expert hands and with their masterly fingers, these ladies spun the richest blues, the deepest scarlets, and the most dignified purple. With miraculous dexterity, they transformed goat's hair into the softest cashmere. The wise women also gave priceless spices, the rarest gems, and the finest oils. These women made the image of God shine as they spun, knitted, and mixed the sacred luxuries for the tabernacle. Furthermore, all the materials overseen by these black belt ladies were the most holy. Purple incense and gems were only used in the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The ladies were the craftsmen and owners of the most sacred materials employed for the most holy functions. Women could never be a priest. All ladies and all laymen could never enter the tabernacle to see the most holy items. And yet, everything inside the sanctum, every bit of clothing worn by Aaron, was made by a woman. The wise touch of the ladies left their fingerprints all over the holy furniture of God's presence dwelling with his people. This is men and women working together according to God's good order for the tabernacle and for worship. Though any massive building project is one that needs a manager, an architect and a quality control officer is required. And the Lord names one man as the master of ceremonies, the master of all masters the artisan from Judah named Bezael. And his expertise is literally not of this world, but it is divinely inspired. The Lord fills Bezael with the Spirit of God in all wisdom, knowledge, and mastery of every craft. Typically, when one can do all trades, they're a jack. But Bezael is a master of all trades. Or he can measure and design blueprints. He's a blacksmith and a jeweler. He can cut wood and precious stones. He's even a magician with a needle and thread with spinning and weaving. Bezel can weld and hem, draw and make the perfect cut. His tools are like spirit extensions of his fingers. And he does have a partner in skill with Oholiab of the tribe of Dan. Yet there's one skill of Bezael that stands out. Verse 34, God inspired him to teach. 
He's a genius pedagogue. As one ancient commentator said, there are many scholars who are incapable of teaching. A PhD doesn't make you a good teacher necessarily. In fact, some of the smartest maestros are horrible teachers. But not Bezael, for God gave him the heavenly gift of teaching. This means that Bezael could take the natural wisdom of skilled men and women and make it better. Bezael encouraged the wisdom, uh, wizard women to be more genius. He honed the brilliant men to be better grandmasters. Bezael both worked masterfully and he taught others to be the best that they could be. His noble heart tutored other hearts to be more noble. And in this champion, spirit-filled role of Bezael, we are given a window into Christ. For who is the ultimate spirit-filled builder of God's house? It's Jesus Christ. And yet the imagery is more complex as we are led to our Savior. For one, the tabernacle is God's presence coming down to earth and dwelling with his people. The tabernacle holds together both incarnation and Emmanuel. The physical furniture of the tabernacle, God made, or by it, God made his presence known. And within the curtains of the tabernacle, God dwelt with his people close up. And it is Christ who fulfills both of these realities. As John says in his gospel, the word was God and the word became flesh to tabernacle among us. The body Jesus was born into was made by a woman. And our Lord said about his body, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up again. The holy space and time of the tabernacle and Sabbath was a foretaste of heaven. Thus Christ keeps us for the his everlasting Sabbath in the new Jerusalem. In this way, Jesus is both tabernacle and its builder. He is architect and building. Hence, there is no temple in heaven since its temple is the Lord and the Lamb. And what stands out particularly, though, here is the motive. Only a noble heart could bring and build. The job to build was commanded, it was a duty, and yet it had to be performed freely, voluntarily, which lands at the heart of our atonement. In the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, Jesus was obligated to die for us. It was a covenantal duty. And yet for this obligation to be accepted, Jesus had to do it of his own free will. He willingly laid down his life and shed his blood for us. Thus he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In love, Jesus freely chose to suffer and die for you. By the free gifts given, furthermore, by the free gifts given here, you get a window into the heart of your Savior. And yet, a noble heart is more than voluntary. It is also generous and liberal. 
Thus Jesus was spirit-filled to lavish benefits on you. He became poor so that you might be rich in him with the imperishable wealth of heaven. Therefore, the concrete treasures of purple, gold, and fragrant spices, the best in the world, show you what Jesus spent on you. Your Savior didn't shell out copper pennies, used clothing, or cheap perfume for you. No, he spent his very self. He gave you his time and effort. His pleasure and comfort paid the bill of suffering and agony. He sacrificed being near the Father to sojourn on earth. And Jesus Christ paid purple righteousness, his scarlet blood, and his priceless life for you. The overwhelming extravagance of the tabernacle is the heavenly bliss that Jesus merited for you by his blood and obedience. This is the generosity of Christ's heart towards you. Finally, the noble heart of your Savior did the best work for you. Jesus didn't do sea work for you. He didn't get an average on the cross. Presently, Jesus' mediation for you is not mediocre. No, everything Jesus does is the best of the best, and you get to enjoy it as a free gift of grace. But there's one more aspect seen here that speaks to our lives in Christ in the New Testament. Jesus is the spirit-filled builder of God's house, but he's also a teacher. He employs men and women as his helpers to build his church. Now, of course, in the New Testament, the temple of Christ is not a building. It is not a material construction of wood and fabrics. The only product of Christ's church building is living souls, you and I, saved and sanctified. And true, the primary means of Christ's building is the ordained work of preaching and sacraments, just as the priest of the Old Testament were the key workers. Yet this chapter highlights the involvement of all the people, men and women, Only Aaron entered the sanctum, but all that he wears and serves was made by women and lay men. And so in the New Testament, without the people, there is no church. Without a congregation, no evangelist can be sent out. The missionary, the church planter, and the pastor would have nothing to eat or wear without the generosity of the people. Besides, the building of the church is not merely bringing in the elect, but it's also the nourishing and sanctifying the saints in the church. Again, sure, the means of grace is primary, but the communion of the saints is also vital in sustaining the life of the church. Men, women, and kids all contribute to the life of the church by giving by praying, the phone calls to encourage, the admonition to repent, the hug of comfort, the joy of tears, and the commitment to stand by each other no matter what. Thus, the nobility of heart so beautifully shown here 
May this be your heart. May we all strive to be ever more noble of heart, to love freely, to give generously, and to do our best for its own sake. For indeed, as we imitate the noble heart of Jesus, he uses us all to build up, to strengthen, and to beautify his church made of living stones, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, now and unto eternity. And may the holy time and place that we have in Christ presently ever keep us heavenly-minded and longing to see that perfect rest, that eternal light, the timeless bliss in heaven before Christ's face. For now we live by an earthly time, but then we will live in heavenly time forevermore for his praise. Amen. Let us pray.